Welcome to episode 135 of the Noob Spiro podcast. Awesome to have you with me today. 135 of these suckers, and it's time to announce a brand new sponsor. I'm super excited. Neptonics have come on board and to uh, usher that sponsorship in. I've got Jerry Guerra from Neptonics back to do a round two podcast with me today, and it's an absolute cracker. Um, just briefly, here's a couple of the things we cover today. We do GoPro mounts, all the different mounting points you can have on a spear gun and on your body. We talk about rig line, float line management, um, innovations coming in the spearfishing world, um, a massive conversation about spear gun ballistics and different parts of equipment and we geek right out and Jared Guerra very good at what he does talks about spearfishing gear thinks about it all day long and uh, it's a very interesting episode and um, quite a few different ideas there to think about if you listen all the way through this episode so before we get there a couple of quick shout outs what do we got here we've got the Central Coast Sea Lions have come on board as patron listeners. And uh, if you want to join uh, the Central Coast Sea Lions and become a patron listener, you just go to patreon.com forward slash and you can support the show on an episode by episode basis. But uh, Alex writes in, just to let you know, I finally pulled my finger out and got the Sea Lions to become supporters of the Noobsphere podcast by joining Patreon. Additionally, he says at some point in the future after COVID, the Sea Lions uh, are inviting me down to come down to to um, play a part in the in the Canada Cup down there, which is normally in Terrigal in February. So um, they get, they're going to set me up with um, some accommodation, and it'd be cool to come down and join uh, lots of the other cool clubs down in that area. We've got the North Shore Seahawks, the Neptunes, San Susi Dolphins, the South Coast, and and all the rest of those boys. So big thanks to the uh, Central Coast Sea Lions and Alex Hamilton for organising that. Awesome to have you with it. Again, if you wanted to become a patron listener, go to patreon.com forward slash newsbro. Awesome. Hey, um, if you do become a, a patron listener too, there's an exclusive patron only episode. There's an equipment deep dive. It's an, I think it's two hours long. I, ch- I chat with a couple of people and it's just geeking out on spearfishing, particularly if you are in your first year spearing, you want to save some money in the right places and spend your money in the right places with spearing gear. Definitely a no brainer. Um, you can become a patron for as little as $2 an episode. Um, also, a review for the podcast, Noob Spear Podcast. Reviews, five stars, great. Um, A says from the US really enjoy the great tips from experienced guests along with the funny humour just for that A um, definitely definitely some talented people on the show sharing their wisdom and tips and advice to help you become a better Spiro and um, if you've been out of the water for a little while then keep the stoke alive just tune into the new Spiro podcast and uh, it's not as good as a dive but uh, jeepers, there's some uh, some cool stoke and some cool stories on this show. Without um, too much more mucking around, I want to get into this episode with Jerry Guerra. Uh, I just wanted to tell you quickly about the deal Neptonics have set up. If you go to neptonics.com, you can use the code NOOB10 to get 10% off anything in their store. So N-O-O-B-10, get 10% off. And... Uh, you know, mad guys, mad gear, really cool brand to get on board with. Stoked to have them as part of the New Story Podcast. Let's get into this episode and geek out further on equipment with Jerry Guerra. Here we go. This episode of the Noob Spirit Podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. They've been on board for more than 100 episodes, and I'd love for you to shop at spearfishing.com.au. They have a price beat guarantee, hassle-free returns, flat shipping rates across Australia, and you can save 20 bucks. For every purchase over $200, if you use the code NOOBSPIRO, you save $20. Thanks for supporting the Noob Spirit Podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au. 
Welcome to the Noob Spiro podcast. I've got a return guest today and uh, a bit of news for everyone as well. It's Jerry Guerra back from Neptonics over there in the US. Uh, awesome to have you with me again, Jerry. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Welcome to back. And uh, big news for the community. Uh, Neptonics has joined Noob Spiro as a, as a sponsor. So uh, it's awesome to partner up with you with you guys, and um, I, I love what Neptonics does. So it was a it was a logical choice to, you know, sort of um, ask invite you guys to to do it. First of all, yeah, I appreciate the invite. Glad to be on board. And uh, you kicked the ball off with a bang. You've offered a discount to listeners straight up. So I'm I'm pretty sure people will be happy to have a new sponsor board with the, with a discount. I think it's good for the community. Cool. So. Um, it's Noob 10, N-O-O-B 10, is that right? Yes, sir. And 10% off, is that store-wide on Neptonics? That's store-wide, Neptonics. Oh, wicked, wicked. Yep. Awesome, awesome. So, And is, uh, that code will be effect as uh, long as we're a sponsor. All right, awesome, man. Appreciate it. Okay, well, the and uh, and I love the win-win-win stuff, you know, like uh, it's, that's awesome for our listeners as well, so I'm pretty stoked. Man, I, I got out to the New Spirit community, and today I wanted to focus hardcore on equipment. Now, we got a little bit of your story uh, back in the last episode I did with you, so this time, this episode's more of a focus um, particularly around spearfishing equipment. I haven't given you much time to prepare but I'm hoping that uh, just with you know the fact that you deal with equipment day in day out, we can we can get a fair bit of this covered. How, how do you, what do you think of that? I feel pretty good about it and do it for a living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you love it. Um, I do. All right, cool. All right, let, you, you want to get straight into it? Let's do it. I'm ready. All right, man. Um, Bob, he says he, he's asking about GoPro mounts. He said. Um, GoPro mounts, uh, he has a lot of trouble positioning them on his spear gun so that they don't get in the way. Uh, he's got a Selvamar 125 carbon gun and he can't seem to find a spot on the gun to mount the GoPro. Um, another guy, JP, offered advice to just do the head mount. Uh, but Bob's quite st- stuck in his, th- this idea of, of having it on his spear gun. And there's a lot of advantages to it as well. Like he mentions... Um, uh, he can't see where the camera's pointed properly when it's on his head. Um, he loses good shots of what he's shooting, and when the uh, when he's got something shot, then obviously the the gun sort of toggles towards you, what you, whatever you've shot, so you can you know you can capture all that action on on the camera as well, like get that third person perspective. So, what solutions do you sort of have for Bob? around um, getting a better sort of GoPro mount on a spear gun? Yeah, so um, there's a handful of uh, different different things he can do. Um, with the Salvimar gun, being that it's a Euro carbon gun, his best bet will be because of the way the line releases on the side of the gun and the way that reel mounts on to the Salvimar carbon gun, it comes with two machine screws from them. Salvimar has got a very specific reel that they are used for those guns, but you can remove the reel and they make a carbon carbon fiber GoPro mount from Salvimar that seamlessly fits right into that okay. um, right be- right above the reel, right below the gun. Um, two little machine screws go through that. I think it's a $65 Salvimar GoPro mount um, designed for the Salvimar guns. It should fix this problem with, no, with uh, zero reflections. It's going to be as most efficient a way to go. Um, the Salvimar gun is also a um, hundred, I'm sorry, it's a um, 26 millimeter barrel on the inside diameter. And then the Rob Allen, universal mount will fit that and so will the neptonics universal mount as well but um for that rob allen gun or not rob allen gun for that salvimar gun i would absolutely stick with the the salvimar's gopro mount that should solve this problem okay too easy 
All right. And what about other guys with um, with GoPro mounting issues on their spear gun? Have you got, uh, is there like some general different um, mounting positions? Where do guys generally mount um, GoPros on their spear guns? So um, most guys will put it right um, at, towards the back of the gun, which is uh, you want to put it just to, just in front of that reel um, towards the back of the gun. That'll be the best place to do it where it doesn't change the balance and the effectiveness of the gun. You don't want it in the front. At that point, your shooting line has kind of formed like a big arc in the water and can tangle on that and so can the bands, right? So you definitely want to put it in the back towards the reel, the closest to the reel, the better, or maybe even right above that reel um, hmm. below it where it will mount on the gun. But um, you just want to make sure it's on the opposite side of the line release. And if it's a JBL Reaper gun or a Rob Allen gun where the line release is in the center, then you absolutely have to put it right above that reel. There's no there's no other place to put it without it risking tangle. Yeah, okay, interesting. Yeah, I haven't, um, I've never mounted it to a spear gun, so I'm just trying to get my head around it. Um, is it's this got a-, a lot of advantages and only a handful of disadvantages um, on the spear gun. The, the handful of disadvantages, if it is wrong, your shooting line or your bands can hit that and either damage your GoPro or cause you to lose your GoPro. And then the other one, um, what I find is kind of a bad thing on the guns. And this is something, as long as you're aware of this, you can avoid this. But if you're, most people always dive with a buddy and their buddy shoots a really good fish. And next thing you know, you're pointing your gun at your buddy trying to film him. And um, it's just something that it happens. And then all of a sudden you realize you're doing it and you stop doing it, but it can kind of be a, it just creates something really unsafe that can be avoided, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, hundred percent. And I guess if your reel line gets entangled around your your, your mount or your bracket, that's another way you get a, a tangle and potentially lose your spear gun as well with a GoPro. Attack. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, the best thing that you could do is um, you know, once you do get that thing installed and mounted, do a few dry fires, no bands on it, just you know, have it sitting on um on your workbench or in your garage and and pull the trigger on it a few times or have your friend pull the trigger on it a few times and just slowly walk that shaft out and make sure that line is not near that camera. It's not going to affect anything. Okay, cool, cool. All right, awesome. Um, do you use a GoPro yourself? Um, every now and then I do, not too often. Um, I find myself with dead batteries more often than um, not. And I kind <laughs> of, <laughs> I'm terrible at editing the video. So I do have um, probably about 200 hours of footage that I have not even looked at that I have on memory card so i've kind of stopped filming until i uh get some time to sort through that i reckon there's a good business idea there for young uh enterprising spiros too that like editing footage it um the only issue is just getting the footage to someone to edit it um but you know like young guys that like making films and stuff if you could um send them footage and they turn it into a video for you and tell you what they need maybe that that, that could be um that could be something that you know you know guys at school that froth on spear and could um, turn into a little bit of a side income for themselves. Yeah. I reckon there's enough guys that just would, would love that. I know I'd be all over it. I'd, I'd mail that guy. My memory sticks tonight. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. The, the other part of it too, though, is like when you put films together, I think you start thinking about what footage you actually need to make a decent video. If you just want to make a, a kill montage, then it's fine. But if you want to add some more dynamic ad, uh, elements, some commentary, um, maybe there needs to be a backwards and forwards process between someone who edits and the you know you like you yourself if you're producing the footage and stuff. But um, a lot of guys aren't too comfortable talking in front of a camera either. I know I've sort of um, it's not my forte, but I'm, I'm slowly getting used to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's definitely not mine either. But um, like you just said, I'm kind of getting used to it. And I think one of the other things of it too is um, 
there's a little bit more art involved in a, a lot of different things in life than we give credit for. Example, cooking your fish can be an art and spearfishing can be an art and video editing and journalism is absolutely an art. And that's one of those ones I just simply don't possess. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's something about sitting in front of a desk just, you know, and, and looking at the same footage over and over and over again. And, you know, there's a labor of love involved in it. And um, I find the same thing with using a GoPro itself. I, I like to be either in the water filming my mates or I like to be in the water spearfishing. I don't really like to do both because I just do do both poorly. So Yeah, and the other thing is too is like from a spearfishing standpoint, the one thing that I find myself when I am diving with the GoPro is I find myself 50% of the time worrying about my GoPro and not concentrating on fish and safety and where my partners are at or where my next drop should be or have I had a long enough breathe up. I'm like, oh, is my battery dead or is it pointing the right direction and that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, 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 I don't mind um, following behind my mates now with a tray or even just a GoPro on a handle and just filming them, you know. Like, I, I quite enjoy just doing that, to be honest, especially if I've already shot a couple of fish, but, yeah. I fully agree. Mm. Yeah, I don't mind that so much either. The, 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 one, the one problem I have with the whole GoPro thing is what to do with the footage and edit it. Mm-mm. That's why I say, like, there's got to be some teenage guys there. They've, do- they've downloaded, you know, that free version of DaVinci Resolve, which is an A-grade editing software, and it's completely free to use. And then, um, you know, they could start putting videos together because there's some really experienced and talented Spiros getting around that have recorded, like you, you know, hours and hours of footage, and they just it just sits there and doesn't do anything. And... Um, you know, so there's some some whiz kids that are pretty fast on the tech these days, and they they make good stuff. But um, but yeah, the the rest of us we're all old and hack it, and we don't have any time. <laughs> <laughs> Funny uh, how that works. Yeah, yeah, it's life, eh? Um, all right, man. Let's move on to rig line management. Um, JP says um, when he started. Uh, JP Freediving, he says when he started, he had a lot of problems with float float lines or real lines, just managing his lines and stuff. I I just think um, it's a good conversation to have. Um, I've had many of tangles myself, particularly when two or three of you are using float lines and, and floats, and uh, you get the cross-ups and, and good fun, have some nice arguments and, and detangling sessions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is going to be something very challenging to accomplish. Um, but the one thing that I can tell you is, is a float and a float line. If if two or three of the guys are using the same kind of float, the same kind of float line, the wind and the current tends to do the same thing to all three items or all two items that both your guys are using. But let's just say hypothetically, one guy's using a neptonic float line and a rife three atmosphere float. And the next guy is using a float rope with a hard Rob Allen float. Um, next thing you know, you have wind and current pulling different weight items and different floats, different directions, and it's going to cause that to tangle up and be a mess. Um, so that can be a little bit tricky. Um, one thing that I've done on my boat that it helps quite a bit is, um, and my rod holders on my boat where the fishing rods would belong is I'll take, um, about a three foot long piece of PVC pipe, maybe one meter, and you can cut that down and put an end cap on that and you can put it on the rod holders. And when you coil up your float line, you hang it on that piece of PVC pipe Mm. and that'll keep it from tangling up in the boat, which is where at least half the problem comes in. And then when you start to, and then when you start to deploy it off, um, that's still another problem. But once again, like just make sure that it's when you, when you are deploying it, you're, you're not putting it on the starboard side of the boat and letting it go under the engine and that kind of shit either. Yeah. yeah. But, um, that can always be a problem too. Um, another thing that a lot of what I'll do a lot of times that there's three guys in the waters, I won't even uncoil mine and deploy it off the back of the boat. I'll just get in the, the water with it coiled up in my hand. And as I start swimming the direction that I want to be, then I'll start letting that go and 
let it come unraveled in the water itself. Yeah. Nice. So that can, that can kind of help out a lot. But, um, unfortunately it's one of those things that all two or three or four divers that are on the boat all have to be aware of it. And, um, you just have to pay attention. Mm. Be conscientious. Um, so I'm not sure how you run your dive boat. So whoever's left on the dive boat, what do you call that person? A boatie, the skipper? What do you, what do you guys call them? In the, in oh, America? we just call him the, the deckhand at that point. All right, nice. Well, yeah. We call it boatie here, um, boatie, deckhand. Sure. But like, you, you know, <laughs> that role when you're out spearfishing, like, you know, there's three or four of you, that role is critical. You're a massive part of the team if you're the deckhand. Um, and. You can make or break dive trips. You know you, you know you've got to put put guys on the right spot for the start of the drifts and things like that. You, you know you've got to say clear when the props bloody. Uh, you know when you're in neutral, um, and you're also generally responsible for stowing the gear and keeping the deck tidy and making sure all the dried uh, fish blood and stuff doesn't stick to the esky and the sides of the boat. It's a it's a critical role. What do you guys do? So so the boaties coming in, maybe one guy shot a fish, and so the boatie or the, the deckhand approaches the, the divers um, uh, coming upwind. Is that how you do it? Yeah, so when, um, what, we, what I try to do is um, when, when I'm running the boat or someone's running the boat, I try to get them to where they come um, approaching you from from down current to up current, like what you just said. So that way, the, um, that way the float lines and the, the, the shaft lines and the, the shooting lines, all that stuff does stay downstream and doesn't want to go underneath the prop. So if they're coming, if, they, if they're coming at you the wrong direction, they can easily, the, the float lines and stuff will go underneath the boat and can get in the, in the props and cause a lot of issues. But um, I, I've been a firm believer of this for a long time. I, I truly feel like the best spear fishermen, and the best divers and the best fishermen, they're only as good as the boat captain that day. Mm, if you've mm. got a captain that's just not putting you on the spots or doesn't have good spots, um, or they're running over stuff and tangling stuff, like it just makes a miserable experience. Mm, mm. And there's yeah. definitely a there's definitely a, something to be said about a good captain or a good skipper or boat deckhand than what there is a uh, someone who doesn't have an idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so you approach the the current the the float lines and the floats are sort of away from the boat. Um, you, you know, you're in neutral. You're approaching the divers very slowly. Thus, they sort of swim to you, um, pass pass you their guns. Is that you guys do yeah, the same? That's, that's yeah, that's correct. Yeah, usually guns the first thing to go in because that's one of the things in your hand. Sometimes the guys that are holding cameras will stay in the water. Sometimes they'll pass up their cameras as well. But you, usually the gun's the first thing to go in, and second thing to be handed to them would be the fish if it's on a breakaway system or something like that. Okay, cool. And so butt butt first with the spear gun up to the deckhand, and then the deckhand's uh, coiling the rope and and storing that on your PVC pipes. Is that how you're sort of running it? That's correct. Sometimes, um, depending. If the, if the other two guys are already in the boat, sometimes they won't coil that up right away. They'll just kind of put that on the back stern cleat or on a side cleat, and it'll just kind of drift with the boat at that point. Yeah, but um, yeah. for the most part, it does get pulled in, or sometimes there's already an extra diver back in the boat, and he'll he'll help out and do the same thing and coil it up. But um, yeah, that stuff is, uh, it's very important, like when it does get pulled in the boat, that it doesn't just like lay on the deck, because that's when it does get twisted and wants to loop over itself and causes more problems for the deployment of the next dive. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, nice. Okay. Do you guys ever wrap your rig lines or your float lines around the spear gun before you get back on the boat? Sometimes I do. I, I don't too often um, from a personal standpoint, but um, I have a lot of friends that do. And I find a lot of the guys that are using like the thinner uh, polypropylene lines or the foam filled float lines, mm-hmm. um, like the more of the rope style, they'll tend to do that. But the, um, the vinyl tubing ones, 
they don't tend to coil as well around the spear gun. Mm-hmm. I think they're a little bit more bulky and take up a bit of space. But um, yeah, I know quite a few guys that do that. It is slower sort of deployment though on your next dive. Like you've got to you've got to pull it all off your spear gun again. I mean, it's not it's not you are not talking twenty minutes here. It's a it's a one minute two minute job. But if you do jump yeah. straight in on fish, like it, you know, and then you've got to load your gun and you know all the rest of it. Um, do you keep a, a, a spear tip protector on your gun? Before, like, as you get into the water and before you get back up, I, I stow one up the sleeve of my wetsuit. I, I don't. Um, I, I definitely have them, like, when they're going from the truck to the boat and on the boat kind of thing. But once I get to the dive spots at that point, it like, the, the way they'll sit on the boat, they're just, I'll take them off and throw them back in my dive bag, and I don't put them back on to the end of the day. Okay, cool, cool. Now, if, I'm, right. on a, if I'm on someone else's boat where they don't have a gun racks or a place to store the 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 guns properly, then I'll definitely keep them on there so that way someone doesn't kick them or something something along those lines but um if you know if they're stored um vertically like um on the on the stern of a boat or on the the side of a boat or something like that then um i don't bother putting them on and off yeah nice okay cool cool all right um let's get back into float line management when you're in the water um so you know you've got two or three guys diving with these rig lines um you know you've worked out some sort of system so you're not crossing over each other all the time while you're in the water um what about when you're shooting fish and stuff like that? How do you manage your rig line? So as far as like shooting fish, like a lot of things I'll do too is, um, especially from, if you're shooting blue water fish, you don't tend to dive much past uh, that 15 meter kind of thing. You know, it's like maybe, maybe a little bit deeper than that, but from the blue water world, um, no one's on trying to stay on top of that same, that same real estate. Like everyone's able to spread out. So this doesn't become such a problem in the blue water world from my experience, whether you're targeting Wahoo at that point or bluefin tuner or yellowfin tuners or doggies, um, you're able to put 150 feet or 30 or 40 meters between every diver in the water. So it doesn't become quite a big issue there, but if you have a lot of divers trying to dive on a deeper wreck or a deeper break off or a pinnacle to where the divers tend to can just on top of each other a bit more. Um, I'll, I'll tend to coil up a bit of it in my hand, um, say half of my float line and I'll keep, I'll swim with that coiled in one hand and my gun in the other. And when I go to make my drop or my descent, then I'll actually just let that go. So it just, it, instead of it being that hundred foot float line or a 30 meter float line, I'm actually now have a half that line in the water and that tends to help out quite a bit. And do you use like a, a Velcro thing to sort of keep it cold or do you have a knot that you tie or um, like if you're not holding onto it physically, then how do you keep it coiled? Um, if I'm not holding onto it physically, like when I'm traveling the bag, it's on the Velcro strap. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then um, like another thing too that um, I, I find myself using quite a bit is if I am on a wreck or if I am on like a blue water area, if I'm on a shallower area, I'll um, – I'll try to make my short, my float line, the length of where I need to be. So, you know, for example, if I'm in 20 meters of water, I'm not using a 30 meter float line. Mm-hmm. So then at that point, I'll just, um, with the clutch system, I'll just pull out 20 or 30 feet up through the back of it and let it snake off the back of it. But now my float line is the right length from where I'm diving. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That's another benefit to that, that float line clutch system that you've got. Yeah. That, that's a good use um, yeah, that thing is that that thing is probably one of the most underestimated pieces of equipment in the Netonics lineup, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. That thing that thing makes quick work of a lot of a lot of different scenarios. What's the retail value on one of those suckers? Uh, I believe they're fifty nine bucks or sixty bucks US. Mm-hmm. If you're getting plenty of use out of it, it's a it's a. I mean, the other thing it can do, like when I've had too much. Um, like float line in the water and you know it wraps around a bomby if you're in current or and stuff like that so you, it is a good idea to keep it trimmed up to the length you need just to save hassles and um 
yeah. I guess if you've got the clutch system, you can let it go fairly easy too, you know? You absolutely can. You know, another thing that um, I find it myself where it works out a lot really well for me diving uh, through the Caribbean and through Florida is um, if you shoot a big grouper or a big snapper, or, um, in, in y'all's case, a big coral trout, and it rocks up, let's say, I don't know, let's just say hypothetically in 60 feet of water, um, 15, 20 meters of water, instead of you diving down on that thing eight or 10 times and trying to fight it out of the hole, you can actually just tighten that clutch up to where your float tombstones and just slightly goes underwater or almost underwater. And that bungee on the front of your pressure pro float system, it'll it'll tighten out to the point to where every time that fish readjusts his gills, it'll pull him out of that hole for you. So instead of you diving on there eight or 10 times trying to get him out of the hole, it, it does that work for you. Yeah. It'll make what, life a lot better. Would it ever bend the shaft though, if you've kind of got him wedged in there good and proper? If he's if he's already wedged in there, there's a good possibility that shaft's already done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at that point, <laughs> yeah, I mean, good point. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, a 65, 70 pound, whatever that fish is that's tied up in one of those caves like that, most likely that shaft was bent before you even put that pressure on it. So, um, but that being said, like you, you could very well bend it yourself, but, um, before you would torque down like that, I would make an investigation dive down in that cave and see what's going on. And you can kind of make that judgment call before you do put a lot of pressure on it. Yeah. Nice. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, another mistake that I've made a lot of is just hanging a whole lot of crap off my, um, off my, float, off my float or, 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 um, somehow doing some shit half ass knot between two different float lines like maybe a bungee and a line and then that seems to be a real good catch point like if another float line runs over it it's like a trap and then uh it's like a just a it's just a nightmare and and all day you just think i'm never doing that again it's absolutely truth um i can't tell you how many times a guy will take like a 50 foot float rope and then put to a six foot bungee to a 25 foot float line. <laughs> and it's like, and, then, and like all, all day long, this guy is just like sitting there cussing at himself and just untying knots. He looks like Spider-Man threw up all over his ass. It's just <laughs> fucking crazy as shit. And then what's so, what's so fucked up is you'll watch him be all pissed off at the end of the day. He spends two hours of his life untangling that thing. Meanwhile, you're pissed off at him for wasting half of your life. Yeah, yeah. And then the next time he comes, he brings the same shit. You're just like, are you, are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> and um, like, but some sometimes you know, like all, all, all of us are pretty tight with our money. You know what I mean? Like at times. Oh, like, absolutely. And so we're like, I'm not spending two hundred bucks on a on a float line. Like I'm, you know, like I'm going to spend thirty bucks and then join it with two other shit lines, and hopefully between the three shitty lines, it makes one half decent one but it's not yeah, the reality what's, is so, it? what's what, what's so interesting about that is you're absolutely right we're all we're all like work our, work our asses off for our money but what i think everyone forgets is is you're also spending a lot of money to be on that boat and all of a sudden four trips later you've spent more time untangling that than what you have diving mm. and you kind of forgot that you just spent an extra two hundred dollars in fucking gasoline donating to the oil rigs <laughs> instead of fucking killing fish like you're supposed to be yeah 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 so it's, but, it's, uh, whatever Buy, buy one perspective. Buy right. It, it, it like um, yeah. Buy it once, cry once, and you're done with it, man. That rife, that rife um, spectra line, that 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 um, that's an expensive bit of kit. But jeepers, it's uh, it's good line. I, I, every time I've used it, I've been impressed with it. I'm just like, if I could, I'd have a I'd have a twenty meter or a sixty seventy foot length, and I'd have a thirty meter length. I think that'd do you know a lot of a lot of my diving. Um, so. That's a phenomenal line. Um, they they have that custom made. Um, 
it, it's it's a very expensive line, but in my opinion, it's worth the money on it. Um, you, it does not work with a clutch, but it is a um, it is a UV resistant spectra that, and then inside of it, it's not a regular foam. They actually put neoprene inside of it, um, but it's um, it's a very expensive line to make, and but it's a very good line. Why doesn't um, it work with tr- your? Why doesn't it work with the float clutch? It's too thin for the clutch, and the spectra on the on the jacket of the the clutch will actually slip through. So unfortunately, it doesn't work. Oh, bugger! But, um, yeah, it is. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a bummer like that. Um, you guys are going to have to tune out another uh, float line clutches, especially for that line, I reckon. Yeah, um, it, it's it's occurred to me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Um, okay, cool. I wanted to mention um, as well the. Um, the Coatsman video, the floats and float lines for spearfishing. Coatsman's got a whole lot of awesome videos on his channel with regards to the technicalities of equipment. Have you watched many of his videos? I have not. Um, I, I will be the first to admit I do not watch a lot of spearfishing videos or um, read a lot about spearfishing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you look at it all day, every day, so I can understand there's got to be an element of fatigue that sets in. There, there, there is, and um, you know, for me, man, like most of uh, most of the stuff that I've made and designed and been a part of with Neptonics, it's all been, it's all been like on a dive trip somewhere. This is not working properly, and I just made it and modified it to work better for myself, and eventually that translates into a good experience for everybody else, which is, in my mind, is a really good thing. So. I mean, that's an interesting sort of question all in itself. So, I mean, you know, like you've made these improvements to equipment and stuff, you know, and obviously build a prototype. How do you go from there to then deciding to, you know, commercialize it and produce it in bulk? Is that a, is, I'd imagine that'd be quite a tricky journey. It can be a real tricky journey. Um, but, um, I mean, to answer that question as best I can is sometimes it's just a, Sometimes it's like a big wave, man. Like you just close your eyes and go for it and hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> there's, an, there's an element of that. Like I love chatting with guys that um, geek out on, you know, equipment and stuff and they spend so much of their time and energy developing this stuff, you know. Like I remember chatting with Warren Bird um, from Hex Aquatic. You know, he did the wetsuits with the um, with the Faraday cage woven into it and stuff. I just thought it was just phenomenal that he's backed himself and just had a real good crack at that. And the development cycle for bringing that product to market was, is, you know, like cheapest. It's a, it's a labor of love all in itself, you know. It and, really uh, is. You know, and sometimes like I'll, I'll make something and I'll, I'll make the prototype of it and I'm like, okay, this is going to work and I'll go dive with it. And I'm like, this is, a, this is fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's other times where you make something and I'm like, well, why in the hell didn't I think about that two years ago? This is the beauty of doing your own gear too, because you, you, you go, oh, well, that doesn't quite work. But if I tweak this, then next time I come back, that, that, might, that might work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. You know, it's pretty funny. Like, th- like this one is a—it's uh, something as stupid as what it, it is. But this is one that I I do for our customers all the time if they'll ask or if they want that. But we don't make it universal because a lot of guys will dive off the beach. Is just putting um getting like a hot awl or a hot nail and heating it up with a, a torch and um, poking um a burn hole through the bottom of your your dive booties, your socks. And at the end of the day, like, you know, for like five years of my diving career, I'd get out of the water, I have balloons on my feet, and I'm like taking my socks off and putting them back on. And then I'm like. And then out of nowhere, like I, um, of all damn things, I stepped on a fishing hook, mm-hmm. poked a hole right to the bottom. And I was like, well, fuck that hurts. <laughs> but you know, nothing that, uh, nothing, a few beers don't get you past. And then <laughs> the next day, the next day I'm diving with a sore foot and my left foot doesn't have any water in it. And my right foot does. And I'm like, well, son of a bitch, we're going to poke holes in here. Why didn't I think of this five years ago? Mm, yeah, nice. Just like the, it's just the, just the dumb stuff like this. Sometimes you're so focused on 
the complications and the all the nuts and bolts and how far you can make something shoot and how long you can hold your breath, you forget about the simplicity of the, of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Really easy and, to do. I went and had to buy a set of booties like maybe end of last year and I was just like, it's a simple item, but it's just not something we really spend a lot of time thinking about. And it's, I was thinking, you know, like I would like to find a set of booties that I really like and then just buy a three or a four pack or a five pack of them. You know what I mean? Like, and then, I mean, the other thing with booties or socks is like surfing and, and body boogie boarding, they've, they've spent a lot of time and money R&Ding different styles like where they got molded feet that you know like where your your big toes kind of held in place but the rest of the foot's free and um you know you know then you can walk across the you know coral reef and stuff like that in them um i mean with us with the full foot fins it does sort of change things a little bit but i I still think there's a lot of room for innovation just with booties and socks that that people haven't really looked into yeah I'd, i'd agree with that um yeah um I, I made the P tough booty um, about two years ago now, and um, I'm in the process of another booty as we speak. But um, working with the neoprene factories and back and forth and the different glues and the bonding and stuff to make it the way you like it, there's a lot more going on to that than yeah. one would think that a sock is a sock, but mm. it's a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some companies that's done some really good jobs with their socks, and there's some there's some companies that it's just literally that it's just a tube and it's like, well, this doesn't work right. Yeah. I've had the balloons. I've had, you know, the poorly fitting ones. It's like, you know, they, and then your feet aren't warm. And if your feet aren't warm, like your extremities are some of the things that cool down the fastest, particularly when you're in cold water. And if you don't have that right, then it can, it can ruin your dive day, you know, like some, yeah. So even as something small as booties. Yeah. Like you say, like the, the process to getting something to market, it's just uh, an incredible journey. Um, but, but good on you for dropping in on that wave. <laughs> um, another innovation idea, Bob uh, says, what I'd love to see developed are pull cord floats. Uh, some inflation system like life jackets. So you basically attach it to your belt uh, and then when the gun gets ripped away, they pull off the belt and auto inflate. And um, I... And then someone else has got on, Chad Matthew said, uh, and he's linked up the Carter spearfishing float. And then I see you've also got a Neptonic CO2 auto-inflating white sea bass float. We do. So we have a white sea bass float. And then the, the one that Mako sells is the Carter float, which we also sell that one as well. They're both phenomenal floats. Um, what we did was to make ours a little bit more efficient was, um, in our mind was, is we did not put the oral inflation valve into it. So it's CO2 inflation only on ours um, makes it a little bit cheaper a little bit easier to use um one less thing to break and go wrong on your float okay but um those um we originally made those for the guys in the kelp they'll shoot white sea bass and um and they'll get tangled up in the kelp so this thing will pull it tight and um kind of give you something really easy to work with um a lot of guys will do something similar to what bob was already using they'll actually wear that on their weight belt and um some guys will clip it to um say like a a two meter line or a five or six foot line and they'll clip that off to the back of their spear gun and if the shit does hit the fan and the reel does jam and go wrong then that thing just kind of deploys out and they pull the ripcord and now they have a uh, 30 pounds of flotation on their gun yeah nice so is that i mean it's has it got it like an internal line kind of built into it i mean ha- it does so on the co2 cartridge is very similar to like what the life jacket would have where it, it hits that thing it's i think if my memory serves me right there's a 60 gram or a 40 gram CO2 cartridge in there, which is enough to inflate that thing to about 20 pounds of lift. Okay. 
And then um, both both the Carter float and the white sea bass float have an over inflation valve. So um, if the CO2 cartridge is going to push some extra air in there, that over inflation valve makes it impossible to pop the float. Okay. So like, I mean, even for guys like with um, real guns, like some, some people like real guns and they don't really want to carry a belt reel. Um, is this something that you could possibly use if you got like muzzle wrapped or, you know, like you just shot something ridiculously big that you shouldn't have or can, can you, absolutely you, could. you could deploy it? You absolutely could. You'd wear it on your weight belt. like the, So it would kind of go not where, not necessarily right where a, a belt reel would go, but you could wear it on your weight belt and then simply just clip that off to the back of your gun in, a, in an emergency. You'd have to be uh, pretty coordinated and think about it, but I reckon that anyone who's diving with that has already kind of thought that process through. If you just had zip ties with it onto your weight belt as well, like, you know, like a, a decent amount of force would rip, rip the, you know, pop those zip ties and then it'd deploy anyway, wouldn't it? Mm. If you were using small enough zip ties, um, like a thin ones that would break, it would. Um, I personally, I don't like the idea of anything fastened to me permanently like that where it might not fail because zip ties, I, I reckon if you were using a small enough zip tie that would hold that in place, you'd be fine with that. In my mind, I was thinking of um, like um, tying on some just a bit of bungee cord, like what you'd use for the breakaway adapters, maybe like some uh, some two millimeter or three millimeter thick bungee and just making some loops to go over it so the bungee would in theory would just stretch away. Oh yeah. Okay. But yeah, something like that. You could do that. You could put it inside that pouch. The pouch is on a Velcro system. So that would, in theory, it would just break right open like that. Um, I don't leave mine hooked to my gun. So if something was to go wrong and I would just take that off and clip it to my spear gun at that time, a lot of guys who dive with reels, then they'll shoot fish and kind of like what we were talking about with that clutch. You can, um, swim down to your fish, make a few investigated dives. If you got like, let's say a big 50 pound fish tied up and you can hook that off onto your shooting line a couple times and then pull it. And that would do the same, the same thing as what your float would with the clutch on it. It would just give it that momentum up. Okay. All right. Cool. Interesting. I'm just, um, I'm thinking about use cases for it and I'm just trying to get my head around it. Cause it's not something I've ever seen or used myself. So yeah. Okay. Um, what, what's the sort of the damage on these? I mean, if it's saving you the cost and purchase of a new gun reel and reel line, then potentially it's it's a worthwhile investment. And as long as it's not too bulky and it's out of the way. Yeah, so I believe the float is like 75 bucks with a CO2 cartridge. And then I think the pouch is like another 15 or $20, if I'm not mistaken. And it looks like it sort of folds down to nothing. So It, it does. It, it, it probably, um, it would probably uh, roll down to about the size of... Um, a little bit longer, like a tall boy beer can. Okay. Yeah, so it's a pretty good, it's a pretty small compact size. Yeah, all right. All right, cool. So um, that's a pretty good answer to Bob's question. Anyway, was there anything else on that you wanted to cover off? Um, no, I, I like where Bob's thinking with that. Um, that that's, um, it's it's something that I don't feel like a lot of divers use this float for that, but um, it's actually a really good idea. I personally, um, there for a while, I just remember how we were talking about how you put that onto a leash under your weight belt. And what I did was on the side of my gun, like let's say we're right behind the trigger mechanism, like right behind where your handle would go, is I just put mine on a bungee cord and clipped it, like tied it off right to the side of my gun. So if something went wrong on my gun, I just pull it on there. Um, it's a little bit bulky and it can be in the way, but um, I love the idea of, especially like when you're blue water hunting with a reel, if that is um, something that a lot of guys will do, but like sometimes you'll end up on a boat with the four guys with float lines and I'll used to use a big hundred meter reel and a 90 pound Wahoo can make stuff go real south real quick. 
So that's a, that's a really good, like little safety feature. You pop the thing. Yeah. You spent $10 on a CO2 cartridge, but I land my fish and everybody's happy. And you get your gun back as well. Um, Absolutely. On the edge of those, um, you know, you you see a lot of guys diving on drop-offs and they're kind of reef hunting, but then they get these big uh, game fish come in and they get opportunity opportunities. And it's like sometimes I think everyone's in love with the idea of the reel, but then a game fish comes in and it's like, I'm screwed. Um, uh, you're 100% right. So there's a very interesting little use case there for, for, for that sort of idea, I reckon. It's it's not perfect, but... Um, it's, it's not perfect, and that's kind of where I started using it because I was on those those deeper pinnacles um, in the Florida Keys and throughout Belize where most of the time I'm hunting big reef fish, but there is that potential of an 80-pound wahoo to come by, and who's not going to shoot an 80-pound wahoo, let's be honest. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I haven't even shot. I haven't even shot yeah. Wahoo. So, so there's, um, so, so there's that. Like, mm, you got to try. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, you do. The temptation's there. There's a guy on the New Spirit community uh, just the other day. Actually, I'll pull up his uh, his post. Um, his name is Eugene Berry, and he shot a a decent sized dog tooth on. Uh, I think uh, it looks it looks maybe. 15, 20 kilo on a real gun and he managed to land it. And I, like Jeep is like, if you have one swim in front of you, like it's a very hard one not to, you know, to have that discipline to not try and land that fish, I think. Yeah, he's got more discipline than me. I would have, I would have rolled that fucker. Oh, he did, he did. He, and, he, good, he, good, good. and he landed it and, it and it all ended up working out, which is your your perfect scenario. But, I mean, just as easily the fish could have drowned him or definitely flogged him and taken all his gear anyway. So Yeah, Um. Yeah, that's that's the unfortunate part of it, but I reckon you know that when you're about to pull the trigger. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that's part of the the reason why we love spearing. I think too, it's those moments. Yeah, it's the night at the bar when you're having fun with your friends, and someone says, "Let's do one more shot," and you're like, oh, "This is a terrible <laughs> idea," but you do it anyways. <laughs> can't get enough Noob Spiro podcast content good news become a patron listener at patreon.com forward slash Noob Spiro and unlock exclusive content only for patrons it's at patreon.com forward slash Noob Spiro generally when I start talking spearfishing safety freediving safety it's when people turn away turn it off and carry on and ignore it if you're in your first couple of years spearfishing, freedivingsafety.com will give you a fantastic foundation to not only make you a safer spearo, but it'll also help you to have more fun, take home more fish, and look after your mates. Check it out at freedivingsafety.com. All right. Hey, man, let's get into spear gun ballist- ballistics. This is a, a fairly big conversation, um, and there's some cracker questions here, so let's hook into it. Vivian says... Um, what diameter or length for the spear? Uh, what diameter and length for, for the spear on your gun should you use? How do you compromise between precision and power? Um, so, w- just uh, which question is this on the on the list? Let me see. Uh, it's straight under spear gun ballistics. Uh, Vivian's not a native English speaker, so I'm I'm trying to just clean it up a little bit so he's talking about yeah like the thickness of the shaft and the length of the spear um, what where's that neat sort of compromise point between you know being very precise and and having enough power to take down so so for myself from a personal standpoint i like spear guns with two bands 
um, to be a nine thirty seconds or a seven millimeter in thickness for myself. I feel like that is a really good power on the bands. And I use, I use 16 millimeter bands or five eighths bands, um, with the nine thirty second shaft with two bands. Um, most of the spear guns that I personally use are wooden spear guns, so they can be ballasted properly. Um, they also have enclosed tracks, so there's no shaft whip on there and they are powered at the max capability. Um, however, um, as far as the, the length for that spear, in my opinion, the best overall length is somewhere between nine and 11 inches, um, from the, the end of the spear gun to the overall of the flopper. And that being said, I try to keep that same exact 11 inches on every single spear gun that I own, whether it is a 90 centimeter gun or a 150 centimeter gun. And the reason is, is when you move from one gun to the next, subconsciously, you're aiming off the tip of your spear and the tip of that gun, but you don't might not realize that you are. So if you have one that's say hypothetically 14 inches, and the next gun is nine inches and the next gun is seven inches. One of your shots from one gun to the next is going to be higher than others for subconsciously. You don't know why. And it's nothing more than you're using one gun with a lot more power and range, but your side alignment's off because of that projection mm. on it. Okay. So, so you've, you've, you've found a, a sort of a, a, a shaft um, diameter and, and rubber diameter that suits what you, what you're doing. Um, if guys want to scale that up or down, I mean, well, let's leave shaft overhang out of it for a sec because I think that's another big conversation. But how do, how do guys think about, because a lot of guys are talking about wanting to use 14 mil bands because you get, you know, for the same for the same load, like if you've if you got 16 mil bands and you, you can load them to 60 kilos of tension, um, you're getting, let's just say you're getting... 200 mils of travel, like where it's pulling, right? Oh, that's vastly under what it does. But, And then you've got 14 mil bands and you can also put 60, 60 kilograms of tension loaded into the mech. But then that'll pull for 250 mils because um, you've stretched it longer. And so that, that, that do you, you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I do. So, so let's just say if, if you're cutting the rubber to the right length and let's just say for for a, for a baseline, most rubber that is sold through America and Australia, to my knowledge, is uh, prime line rubber. So prime line rubber stretches at 350%. I believe Salvimar makes a rubber that's a 380% stretch. There's another company called Kent that they claim their rubber is a 400% stretch. So let's just use 350% stretch. So rather you use 14 millimeter or 16 millimeter at 350% stretch, the 14 millimeter is going to generate about 90 pounds. And then the, the 16 millimeter is about 110 pounds. Now where it gets kind of interesting is once you load that, and let's say you load it on your spear gun for the first 15 minutes, you're going to generate that full 110 pounds of pressure. Now, once you leave it loaded for an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours, you're swimming on a spot, you're blue water hunting, whatever that case is, that starts to decrease. So a lot of guys will find that they load their gun and they don't think it's powerful enough, but it's been loaded for three hours. And that, that rubber is just, it's now stretched to a point to where it's not giving the full max potential that it could. Um, so there's some argument and there's some science behind the 14 mil rubber underneath initial load. It's not as strong, but it wants to hold say 90% of its power after being loaded for one and a half to two hours. So there's a little bit of an argument there. And that's kind of one of those things that science isn't really explaining really well because it's all the same amount of latex and it's same amount of tubing just pulled over time. Yeah, righto. So 
so I, I don't know if that helps answer that question or not, but no, nah, it does. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big question too. What about, what about thicker rubber? Uh, again, like there's 18 and 20 mil bands on the, on, and some, sometimes there's smaller people are using 12 and 10 mil rubber as well. Yeah. For, I have two spear guns that are, um, they're hundred centimeter guns and I have two of them set up with the, uh, 18 mil rubber on it, which is considered three quarter inch. And it's one band with one nine thirty second shaft and one rapid Dyneema line. And it's um, it's just set up for very fast reloads, but it's still got enough punch to go through a fifty pound fish. Mm-hmm. But, with, um, with, with some of the guys that are loading up fourteen mil bands and trying to get them to do the same job as a sixteen mil band, because I've heard this put to me on a few different ways now, um, are they are they stretching those bands past the point of of effective um, load? Like, a, if I can't you, I can't say that for sure, but I have put rubber on our certified scales i have a i have a system that we built that can kind of test batch of rubber from time to time and i've never been able to make a 14 mil rubber perform like a 16 mil rubber without overstretching it yeah yeah but that doesn't mean that they're they're not using a different brand of rubber or maybe they're using a small id 14 mil rubber versus a standard id 16 mil rubber so there could be that argument going on as well is that is that on a load cell you've done that yes yeah, we, I mean, that's precision instrumentation, so you can really see what they do. I mean, what about the micro ball stuff where you're actually, you know, because the, the internal diameter seems to be getting tighter and tighter these days. Like a lot of companies are, you know, they're saying that, you know, yeah, it's only a 14 mil band, but you've still got the same amount of latex because it's a very uh, small inner diameter. I personally um, like the, the small ID rubber. I think it gives a little bit more snap and pop off the gate. Um, where I think the science gets kind of weird is it very well could be that placebo effect that divers don't aren't really aware of. And this is where the argument kind of gets really weird is because if you add on an eighth of an inch to change it to a 16th of an inch, right. But on the diameter, right, you're only adding a 16th of an inch. So on the diameter on 14 mil, if you were to add that same 16th of an inch, now you have not 14 mil rubber anymore. You have 16 mil rubber. So it kind of gets weird there. So the way that I kind of, change that in my mind was is if you take 12 inches of 14 mil small id rubber and you take 12 inches or and you take 12 inches of the 16 mil rubber of standard id and you put them on the scale next to each other the numbers don't really lie anymore right so now you're talking about like you're two grams off so what does two grams really translate to on your spear gun pull but that being said is what i what i found is i don't find that they're having a lot more power what I find is the the trigger pull. When you pull the trigger, it wants to. It seems to accelerate faster with the small ID. But I haven't. When you put it on the certified scales and you measure it out, you're not generating that huge power load that people think it is. But what you do gain is a lot of acceleration, in my opinion. So a 14 mil band, if you load it to 350 percent, you're getting 90 pounds of 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 um, torque on there. Is that right? Is that the right word? That's, for it? That, that, that's correct. Okay, and with 16 mil band loaded to 350%, you're getting 110 pounds of pull. That's correct. What about, okay, so what about 18 mil then? Have you, have you. 18 mil is generated about 140. Holy moly. So for, because some of these mechs are built to take that sort of torque sitting on them. So, so most of the mechs, Rife's, our mech, um, the Rob Allen mech, most of those mechs will hold well over. 600 pounds the neptonics mechs our tuna mech our reef mech our reverse mech the back of the shafts break before the mechs do mm. Mm. which is a really uh interesting thing so it's almost 
I wouldn't say impossible to overload that and have a mech fail, but you're going to have a shaft fail way before you'll have that mech fail. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's another interesting point too, like where guys choose to um, sort of, you know, whether you're using finned or notched shafts, does that, does that the way that power is loaded onto that shaft, does it affect travel and stuff much? You know, there's no doubt that it would affect the travel of it. What I don't know is when you look at the most sophisticated spear gun, whether it's a double roller, a inverted roller, a standard spear gun, an enclosed track, an open track, it's got a magnet track in it, like the list goes on and on. At the end of the day, where I think a lot of people overthink this, is it's still powered by two or three rubber bands. So at some point, your shaft, your rigging line, and the release of that trigger becomes more important than what style rubber you're using or how much it's torqued out, in my opinion. Um, that being said, to answer the question of a notch shaft versus a shark fin shaft is, in theory, no argument about it. The notch shaft is going to be better because it has less resistance in the water. It's more hydrodynamic. However, I believe that's something a machine will dictate and the, the human eye will never, ever see, mm. especially when you look at the acceleration, how fast a spear flies. But that's just my opinion there. I've never tested the one versus the other to see if one's shooting farther than the other. So I don't, I don't have, I've never done that before. With a lot of guys in their spear guns, like I don't measure my rubber. Well, I'm a terrible example, but I know I don't know if I'm typical or not. But I think some guys don't. Um, they don't measure their rubber, to, so they don't even know if they're getting 350 percent band stretch or not. Are some guys cutting rubbers too short to try and get more power? Is that something that happens commonly? It is, and at some point, the rubber just simply won't stretch past much past 400. And it stops giving its potential at 350. So you can cut it too short and it just simply won't stretch far enough for you to load it. Like it's just not going to happen. Mm, mm. So, so there, there is that going on, but um, I, I know several guys, they don't, they don't measure it at all. They just go to a store and buy the one the guy tells them. And Hey, I got, I have a Rob Allen 110 and they leave out with uh, bands that are two inches longer or two inches shorter than they should be. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it makes a huge difference? I think two inches short makes a huge difference. Um, I think it makes it a very, can make a gun very inaccurate. I think two inches long might actually make your gun shoot a little bit better and smoother if it's depending on what the gun and make and model is. Um, the biggest thing that happens at Neptonics that I see with the local customers that come into my Tampa shop is their guns not shooting right. And 75, 80% of the time, like the problem of it is, is it's overpowered. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, cool. And, um, so the over the overpower is going to cause two problems, right? Like first, it's going to make that shaft flex. If the shaft is flexing and flying like spaghetti in the water, it's not going to be accurate. And obviously, there's a lot more hydrodynamics there. And then number two is the gun wants to jump. And if the gun's not jumping, now you don't have a flat, stable launching platform. It tends to make your shots shoot really low. And people are like, well, if my gun's overpowered, it shouldn't shoot low. But it's actually what happens because it makes the muzzle of the gun sh- kick up. As the shaft is leaving the gun and it puts the back end of the shaft up in the up in the air or up in the water, I should say, and it makes the shot the shot hit low. Yeah, I, I'm thinking I might have got that out of my roller, and um, it's actually a question someone else asked too. He said, uh, "Let me just find it." Well, Chad Matthews says consistency. Um, some days I can hit everything, and some days I can't hit a barn door. Um, 
and Machu Daiku on Instagram said, "Roller, roller guns shooting low. Almost all rollers I have used while hunting and testing in the pool shoot low. Many theories have been developed, like inertia, the bands flipping up the muzzle, but no definite solutions have been found. Please unravel this mystery. Do you think this is a same issue, or is this something different? Um, I don't tend to think that ro- roller guns." Um tend to kick as much because the power is coming bright straight back at you. So it doesn't make the guns kick up or, or something like that. Right. Cause now the, the, one of the biggest concepts of the rollers is that it makes the recoil come 100%, 180 degrees back at you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that kind of goes there. So, so it's with, a different with, issue. Yep. It's, it's a little bit different issue. My gut, my guess would be with that is the pretension on that is probably a little bit too tight. Mm. And being that the pretension's too tight is it's overpowering making that shaft kick up just a little bit and flexing the shaft. Because most, and I'm not saying this, but all the Euro style, like a, whether it's a Rob Allen roller, so those things are very easy to get the pretension wrong. And now you're not at 350% stretch, and most guys are having to use a load assist to get that thing loaded just because of a reach advantage. Mm. So now you might be at 375%. So you're not overpowering it from a recoil on the gun. You're probably doing it from a slight shaft whip that you don't realize. Okay. Yeah, interesting. I found the, the, my biggest issue with rollers is just continuous maintenance. It's it's making sure that you know replacing those those rubber that rubber those rubbers and, and bridle the bands and bridle. It's just it's just painful. And and I'm not a precision dude at the best of times. And so <laughs> having to remaintain that or or ask my friend uh, to kindly do it for me, it was just a bit more pain than I wanted. Simple bands just they're just easy. You just slip them in. You can do them yourself. It's all done and you're good to go again in, in you know, five minutes. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, I use a double roller, the Neptonics double roller, when um, I know I'm in blue water and I know I'm going to be diving some deeper, big, big fish. But that is the only time I use that gun. For the most part, I'm just using a, a simple 100 or 110-centimeter gun for everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that roller guns have a place. For sure. But, um, but I do agree with you that they are a lot to keep up with, but they – when you are going after those big fish or you have to take those big far shots at big fish, the roller gun just, it, it does win a big double roller. It just kind of owns that market. Yeah. Yeah. And Manny sub has made a phenomenal double roller head that my, my hands off to him. That guy did a really good job with that, with uh, yeah. uh, making that gun, that roller head adapt to several different guns on the market. That thing's wicked. Yeah. He told us about that about a year before it got launched on the market. And he spent a lot of time and energy just getting the R and D right on that thing. So I'm, I'm stoked for him. Yeah. He did a good job with that. It's a really good product. Um, shaft materials uh and chris alby also says straight shafts every time uh even even new ones from time to time aren't straight and vivian also asked does the material impact the behavior of the spear so in terms of stainless or spring steel and there's various versions and grades of all of those as well um what are your thoughts yeah so like the um if you look at the south african steel whether it's um Spearmaster or Rob Allen or uh, the Rabbi Tech shafts, I believe, come um, from there still as well. Um, versus a seventeen four steel, um, the a seven mil shaft, the same lengths. The Rob Allens tend to be about two ounces heavier for the same length. Um, that being said, um, two ounces it, it definitely translates to a decent amount of weight, and that's on a shaft that's about one hundred and fifty centimeters. So that goes to a, a gun that would be like a one ten. Yeah. So there's two ounces would would in theory would definitely impact the way that shaft is hitting some stuff. But once again, I think that kind of is more of something a machine will see than what a person could see. Um, 
so the materials there, but he's absolutely right. We get new shafts in all the time. Um, and one out of 30 or 40 are not straight from the factory and stuff happens. And I can't truly tell. Um, I think it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Some of them might get bent in shipping. Some of it might've just not been straight from the start. Some of it might've got, might've happened when, um, it went into the heat oven, the oven for heat treating. It could have just slightly twisted it or tweaked it. Like, um, some of it might have just happened in shipping or in transit from A to B to B to C, you know. Mm. But um, no, he's not wrong about that. Charles, Charles Law, I think, just going back to my scuba diving days, like the temperature, temperature seems to affect. Obviously, with steel, it's very important during the manufacturing process with um, expansion and contraction. Um, maybe that's causing some of it as well. But um, I'd like it, to. It very well, it very well could be. Um, yeah, cool. Um, what's your preference, though, with materials? Um, stainless, carbon, um, and do you think, you know, like, so you're saying the Rob Allen shafts uh, or the, you know, the South African in general, the spring steel shafts, they're a little bit heavier. Does the fish feel that? I I don't personally know the answer to that. I don't think they do. Um, I personally love the 17.4 shafts. Um, there is no doubt that the, the Rob Allen shafts do not bend as easily. However, when you do find that fish that is able to bend it, they now snap. Mm. And if I shoot a big fish and my shaft bends, I usually still get to land my fish. But if the shaft breaks in half, now I'm out of trophy fish and a fucking shaft. And that that's that's heartbreaking. I've snapped a shaft at the notch uh, when it when it swam under a coral head and uh, and pulled up the other way and just went ballistic and s- just snapped it clean at the notch. Um, do you think fins are superior to notches for that reason? I do. I do. For that, the, for that reason, for specifically for that reason. But outside of that, I don't believe they are. And then obviously, if you're using an enclosed track, you have to have a shark fin. Mm-mm. Some people argue that putting the fins on, you know, obviously you're adding a lot of heat to the steel, so it, it can affect the, you know, the strength and, and, um, and, and also bend and warp the steel as well. What are your thoughts? Um, it could bend and warp it. Um, I do believe that it does take out some of the strength, like he's saying, but not nearly as much as cutting a notch into it mm. so i do believe that it'd be less of the two evils yeah I, i've started to really like using fin shafts uh, myself and my heroes both use finned and i came from a rob allen background or robin and style guns uh the euro style guns and they were all notched as well but i like the fins personally now and i've got used to them and i i still don't tie my shooting line into the fins though i still go on the back of the shaft what's your preference with that um i put mine onto the uh, the fin tabs but um there's nothing wrong with it at all in the back of the shaft. The reason why I don't put it in the back of the shaft is um, from a personal standpoint is when I end up back there, sometimes the knot where I tie my Dyneema line will get stuck underneath the wishbone and on it. And it wants to just cause a little bit of friction and want to twist up and not lay right. But outside of that, that's the only reason. But I tie mine off to the, the first the first fin tab. I generally use mono as well. This is probably why. Um, and then obviously the memory's conducive to doing it as well. But I recently did it with Dyneema shooting line and I bloody lost a shaft. <laughs> uh, and it was spewing too. It was a stainless uh, 1.7, 1700 long 7mm stainless uh, fin shaft. It was a beautiful shaft. I think maybe they're 80 or $90 to replace. I was just like, oh, well. Oh man, <laughs> we've all been there, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> s- s- stainless? You like stainless? Um, I like the seventeen four spring steel. Okay. Yeah, so you, I do. 
and and like okay, re re straightening spears, old old spears. Is that possible? Um, there, to my knowledge, I don't know anyone on the market or uh, in the spearfishing community that can straighten the spring steel, South African steel. Um, the seventeen four can be straightened. I believe Mori can straighten shafts. Um, there's a handful of other um, shaft companies that can straighten them. What I have found is you'll spend a lot of money to straighten that. And no matter how well they get it straight, the next big fish tends to twist it right exactly at the same spot. So it's already kind of created a weak spot. Um, if you have someone local to you that you could drive your shaft over to for them to fix, it's probably worth it. If you have to pack it and ship it and get it shipped back, it's a waste of your money. All right, cool, cool. Um, awesome. Um, so again, a lot of these, um, small things like, uh, in terms of the materials and the weights and stuff, it can probably only be detected by a, a machine is what you're sort of saying. Um, let me just go through this question here. Um, oh, Chad, Chad Matthew asked sort of the same question about the, you know, the 14 mils giving a longer pull because they, you know the same but we've already sort of had that same conversation I, f- I feel like we we covered it off yeah i would um just um out of curiosity um maybe we could get on there and ask these guys and go over this in the next topic um i would love to know what brand that they're of uh, rubber they're using on the 14 mil versus the 16 mil or if it is the same brand um there might be something on why that 14 mil is working better they might be getting it from a different company and that's why they're having a little bit different results with it yeah okay cool 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 so oh. um, it's hard for me to to know that question or to answer that question without having the baseline of if it's the same manufactured rubber, mm. that kind of thing. All right, cool. Um, Tommy Dawes asks, is there a power to weight ratio for rubbers and shafts per gun lengths? Um, is there a kind of a, a rule of thumb to be followed? Um, a good rule of thumb is like what I was saying a little bit earlier, we were talking about, I believe um, – a two-band gun, a 9.30 seconds or a 7-mil shaft works really well. I do like the 16-mil rubbers for that. Um, if you're going to use three bands, I do like the heavier shaft, an 8-mil shaft or a 5.16. Um, and then when you do get into your bigger blue water guns, four five eight bands, 11.30 second shafts. Um, in my honest opinion, I believe a 3.8 shaft is kind of an obsolete item to use. But that's just my opinion. A lot of, a lot of the old-school tuna guys still swear by a 3.8 shaft and it's a very effective tool if you're using six bands, which is, <laughs> which is, I mean, if that's, if you're the guy who's taken that 18 to 20 foot shot at a 300 pound tuna, that is a, it's a good weapon to use. But I also find a gun that big, you can't move it left or right. So you start at some point you want speed over power, right? And that uh, finding that balance for yourself is kind of there. But um, a good rule of thumb is keep all of your shafts the same length. Um, try to keep your skinnier shafts, the nine thirty second seven mils with two bands. And then your five sixteenths shafts, your bigger guns with the three bands. And that that ratio tends to work really well. I've had a lot of success with that on my guns over the last 20 years. Okay, cool, cool. All right, cool. Um, I like it. Spear Factor. Uh, oh, yeah, so he asked the same question. Perfect combo of bands to shaft size. Um, so same sort of question as Tommy. Um, Jay Galloway would like to hear a convo between Mono and Dyneema. Uh, and Spectra Shooting Line, uh, Ed Martin over at Killshot, one of your buddies, he had the same sort of um, question again. I've had this on the show before, but um, happy to, to, to cover cover the same ground. And we sort of started talking about it just before, actually, with uh, the way we were tagging onto our shafts. So, sure. Um, um, just to retrace back before we go into the, this, that, what, to answer um, Tommy's question and the Spear Factor's question, 
once you do find a combination that you like, and I encourage this to all, all divers, all spear fishermen, find the, the length bands that you're working really well for you. Um, say it's a 110 inch gun, or I'm sorry, 110 centimeter gun or a 55 inch spear gun, and you're using 26 inch bands, find out the manufacturer of those rubbers, whether it was um, Neptonics or their Rife bands or their hammerhead bands or whatever that is. Find which ones were successful in that guns, which ones work very well. Just replicate that. Once you have that recipe, don't change your recipe. But um, that, that's that's been the rule that's worked really well for me. The the UV protective coating on the rubber um, seems to be an influential factor with a lot of rubber. And I've also heard um, chat about, you know, different um, quality levels between, you know, the batches of rubber. Like, obviously, um, there's some variability with the even within specific brands, like they're sourcing it from the same places and all the rest of it, but there still seems to be performance differentials. It is. Um, so from what I'm understanding, they're mixing this stuff in like these big 5,000 to 10,000 gallon vats of rubber. And um, maybe it's just mixed a little too long or not long enough or something along those lines. But um, maybe there's more UV inhibitor in there. I don't believe it's coming out to a precise measurement. I think that the, uh, the way it's kind of measured in there is like, oh, we're going to pour this amount in, or maybe we poured in more by accident. I don't believe it's um, a computer generated machine. That's like at the local hardware store. That's giving you the perfect color of paint in your can. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a tough one, but um, I think brands have obviously got more consistency. I would love to see some sort of um, comparisons and testing on all the different types of rubber. Um, uh, there's a lot of anecdotal stuff up there, but um, it'd be, you know, load cells don't lie i guess yeah i we've um we've been selling and using primeline for um, a better part of 10 years now and they're absolutely the most consistent that we've used um I'll, every batch that comes in i test and they're usually within a half a percent of each other so they, they've got really good consistency with primeline so primeline gets marketed as a us latex i think over here or or some similar type type things is there any other brands that primeline goes by not to my knowledge okay not right, to my cool. knowledge i can um i can get some answers on that for you if you like them yeah that'd be cool um there's while we're on rubber too so there's the uv coating which is you know like you know it can be pink or green or black or whatever and it sort of protects the rubber from breaking down in the sun is from some from my understanding there can be different thicknesses um the, these are all interesting sort of points of differentiation. Do you have any opinions on it? Um, I personally use um, the colored rubbers on my spear guns. Um, the only reason I put the colors on there so I can tell which one's on the back of the boat is mine because most of my dive buddies at this point are all using the same spear guns. So I have green and my dad's got blue and my other buddies got black ones and so on and so forth. Um, that being said, I have put the natural latex rubber ones on like just that amber and there is no doubt that the uv protectant absolutely helps like a set of spear guns will typically last me about a year a set of bands and with that uv the the non-uv coated they i might get three months out of them before the sun eats them alive yeah wow it's it's absolutely impressive of what that uv protectant does there's a i've had a guy on the show too and he talked about progressive bands with regards to the power curve and or reactive bands um and progressive meaning like they pull for longer and steadier and less sort of acceleration out of the gate. Reactives are really the snappy ones that give a lot of short punchy power. That And he, he his sort of opinion was that 
one was better for roller guns and one was better for conventional guns. Have you noticed that sort of distinction or is that a sort of a false dichotomy? No, no, he's, he's definitely onto something there. There's a handful of brands that come from Europe uh, that are on a lot of the roller guns and that progressive rubber tends to work, I think, a bit better on the roller guns because uh, it, it definitely has more time to ride that track. Um, that being said, I feel like the biggest thing of a single roller gun is, is there is not enough acceleration. So putting progressive rubber on something that's going to actually slow down something that's already slower is a bit of a fucking problem. So, uh, so he's absolutely right that there is a difference between those two. Um, I personally like reactive rubber when, and I like reactive fins over progressive fins. Like when I kick, I want something to happen. Like at the end of the day, it's about spearfishing for me. It's not about free diving. So when I pull the trigger, I need that shaft to close the distance. When I kick my fins, I want to close the distance. And I think a lot of guys kind of mix that up and they, there's a lot of amazing free divers and they do a lot of really good classes and really good schools. But at the end of the day, they're still teaching you free diving and they're not teaching you to close the distance on a dog tooth swimming away from you or, mm -hmm. you know, a big grouper that's running from you. Like at the end of the day, like you need, at some point you need to be able to close that gap. You need to be quick. I want to chat about that with you in another episode uh, I really want to go deep into some hunting techniques and stuff so I okay. will we'll just put a little bit of a a, a, a marker in there just for, for next time because I think that's an interesting conversation to have Spearing Magazine are the world's premier spearfishing magazine. It's a publication for Spearows by Spearows. It's full of just hard-charging articles to inspire your next spearfishing adventure. Check it out at spearingmagazine.com Kill shot spear guns, timber guns made in the USA. Simple, effective, dependable, made in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin. These spear guns are an absolute work of art. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com. And hey, I've got a special for you 30 bucks off user code noob. That's just noob, N O O B. For a limited time only, save $30 on any spear gun at Killshot Spear Guns. Save 30 bucks on any spear gun. Check it out. Jason Harris uh, mentioned a really cool video. It's another Coatsman video. Uh, it's a test fit in the Rob Allen uh, dive factory, uh, all about different shooting lines and knots and where they fail and stuff. I thought that was a real interesting um, little bit if guys wanted to go and have a look at that. Um, Taz Yance. So Taz over at As, uh, it's, there's a, they've got a podcast called Yarns with As and Taz. Uh, these fellas are pretty funny. They spear, but they don't just talk about spearing. But he says um, all the systems to reload are time-consuming uh, as he misses a lot. Um, have you got any advice for, for, for Taz? Yeah, um, I actually do, which is part of the reason why that two of my smaller guns are with one damn band on it and one wrap of line so I can do that shit faster because I do miss a lot too. And um, any diver who doesn't miss a lot is either not pulling the trigger enough or is full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like I wish, and I'm sure there's plenty of commercial spear fishermen or someone who does get several hundred trigger fulls a, a month that don't miss a lot. But um, I don't know if I had to guess, I probably miss one out of five shots, just miss for no, no explained reason. Like all oh, my stuff's perfect. And I had him dead to rights. It just goes wrong. So, um, I, I, I can relate to that. And when I'm in shallower water and I'm tend to shooting fish that are under 10 pounds a piece, one band, one wrap of lines. And that way, when it goes wrong, I can put it back together and go quick again. 
A lot of competition sparrows uh, here use like closed muzzle pipe guns with a single 18 or 20 mil band and a single wrap of mono as well. Um, so it's interesting. And I mean, they want to reload real fast because it's about shooting, you know, a lot of fish in a short time. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so we never entered a Jay Galloway's or kill shot spear gun. Um, the pros of Dyneema versus Mono. Mono absolutely forms a memory. There's no questions asked about that. Mono is um, budget friendly. Mono is extremely strong. If you crimp it properly and you treat it properly, um, Mono is amazing. Um, Dyneema is usually two to three times the strength for the same size ratio. So you can essentially use like a two millimeter Mono, which is about, th- or yeah, which would be about 300 pound test. A 1.7 or 1.8 Dyneema is about 660 pounds strength. So you get a lot more strength ratio with Dyneema. Um, I personally like Dyneema. I use that on all my spear guns versus mono. Um, I find it a bit faster to rig. I don't have to keep up with crimps in a crimping tool. Um, I can tie a simple double figure eight knot or a bowline and I'm on my way. Um, the one negative to Dyneema is, is when you shoot a fish and he spirals and twists up, you have to make sure that you're very diligent and comb the kinks back out of that dynamo otherwise it will tangle on your next shot where mono it tends to clean itself up for you mm. um i don't see the if there is one big con to dynamo it's expensive but that's nothing that no one's most people are aware of that when they're decide to buy it and purchase it but i think it's um for shooting line i think it's phenomenal yeah cool the memory of mono makes it um pretty interesting as well and i think tag if you want to tag into the back of the shaft i don't i don't know i well i didn't do well with my first go to dyneema um shooting line into the back of the shaft yeah uh, the mono definitely tends to work better in that, that application mm. um it's one of those things that doesn't really make sense of why because the dyneema lays super flat and clean when it does go into the trigger mechanism but the mono just seems to deploy a lot easier on the way back out for some reason mm, okay cool cool um you happy with that i am all right um shannon says rubber replacement should i make my own or buy from the shop um i shannon to answer that question i believe every diver should know how to tie his own rubber bands so um you'll save yourself a little bit of money if you make your own however it's very convenient to buy to buy them from a shop that's already done um but personally i do believe that every diver should know how to make them and now rather you decide to make them out of convenience uh, or I'm sorry, to purchase them out of convenience, that's fine. But if you're on a trip and your rubbers break on the boat, you should absolutely know how to tie those and fix those and replace those. Hmm, cool. Um, what about uh, replacement times? So you were saying you get a, about a year out of your bands? I do. So regardless of the situation, um, the first week of January, when everyone's kind of off for the, the Christmas, New Year's holiday, um, most people tend to have 10, 12 days of downtime during there, like between the holidays, like work's a little bit calmer. Um, all, all of my spear guns, I take all the rubbers off. It all goes in the garbage. And I put all brand new rubber bands on my guns in January. And that way, when the emergency Wahoo trip pops up last minute or the weather window opens up, all my gear is sitting on go and I'm ready to go have fun. Yeah, nice. Um, some some of my dive buddies do it in March. Um, and that's fine. Um, I do mine in January because we have a Wahoo run in the Florida Keys that starts going from around November timeframe to march time frame and i just like to be ready for it and your guns are fresh your bands are fresh everything's good absolutely and then you know like the same thing though um as far as replacing the band um i have my guns i have three to five extra shafts per gun um whether i've used that rigging on those guns or not if it's been on the boat it's been in salt water i cut all that stuff off 
and I literally redo everything. I leave them sitting in, in my garage ready to go. Yeah, the biggest the biggest thing that I feel that divers mess up on on landing that trophy fish is just the attention to detail. And you know, if you're using stainless steel cable for your shooting line and it's got corrosion on it, you can't. And it's been on the boat five times, but you never shot a big fish with it. Like at some point, a 250 pound fish will test that and it'll fail or it could fail. Mm. All right, cool. I've got two little questions to, to, to wrap us out for this round. Jerry, um, One Breath, One Death says uh, most reels can and will jam. Um, it's a challenging statement. It wasn't really a question. Uh, did you have any comments for that? Um, I do. A lot of guys that I find that do have their reels jam, and he is. It, it's, a, it's a very fair statement. A lot of guys have had a lot of problems with reels. Um, is If you put too much line on the reel, when you're coiling it up in a hurry on the back of the boat, it wants to like bulk up to either the top or the bottom. And then when you goes to deploy, sometimes it can fall off of that and land behind it. And which is what causes the jam. Another thing is, is most screws tighten down to the right. So to loosen that drag, it needs to go to the left. So a lot of guys that are left-handed will spool their line on their reel to the left, which in turn, when that line goes to pull off the reel, it makes the drag tighten down on the reel. Mm. So regardless, the regardless if you're left-handed or right-handed, it needs to be spooled on right. And another thing that'll go wrong a lot of times too, is you'll have the line on the reel to the right, the proper way. And you shoot a fish that takes off 50 feet of that line or however many meters that line. And you hand it to your buddy in the boat and he starts coiling it back on your reel in the wrong direction. So now you have this weird loop and this tangle in there. So if a reel is not loaded properly with line, and if a reel is not maintained properly, it, it's just a matter of time before it jams. However, if you are diligent with that reel like you need to be, and you put that back together and you don't overfill it, you you should be fine with a reel for the most part. Do you what what is your maintenance? So you get back from a dive day, you've shot like, I don't know, half a dozen fish, um, and you've put your line back on the way you like it to be and stuff, but what what other maintenance apart from that are you doing? Uh, just a freshwater wash? Are you ever stripping all the line off and redoing the whole lot? Um, I, I don't. Um, I, I don't at all. I literally just um, fresh water rinse everything, and that's it. I'll take the shafts out of the gun so I can make sure I get a lot of fresh water into the mechanisms and um, on the reel where the the drag is. I'll loosen that up and I'll push a lot of fresh water through that out of the waters. But that's all I do. Okay. Cool. Cool. So it's just about making sure you feed the line back on evenly and um, in the right direction. And then if the freshwater rinse is pretty much your maintenance once you've tied it on and set it all up correctly. That's correct. And then um, another thing that you can do too is about every five to seven trips on my reels, I will um, take the drag open. I'll open it up and then I'll spray silicone spray in there or put silicone grease in there and put it back together. But um, just like a fishing reel would be where you have the little injection spots for lube or when you take your truck in to get your oil change, they, you know, they put grease on all the fittings in there. A reel is no different. It's got moving parts and it has to be lubricated or it will, it will mess you up. But that's just, that's just part of the maintenance program of it. Okay, cool. And, um, awesome, man. Um, we've had a mad chat today. I've got one last question here from sync face. Uh, fins he says i hate having to buy fins before kicking them to test them out and um this is an age-old problem i mean you, you don't go into a shop and then jump in a swimming pool and try on five different pairs like you can with a pair of like running shoes or whatever you you just 
get them off the wall and that's it. You buy them, you use them. Um, unless you yeah. get part of a, a, a swimming pool freediving group or you're out on a boat and your mate lends you his fins or something like that and he's for some reason he's the same size foot as you, which is unusual if you're a behemoth like me. Um, yeah, I understand completely. That's a very valid question. Um, here in Florida, we um, a lot of the guys will freedive in the springs a lot up in North Florida. And um, they twice a year, there'll be a bunch, like they'll do what they call a spring fest. And they'll get up there with a lot of the different manufacturers will be up there, soft, mediums, hards, and you can try some out. But um, at the moment, most dive shops don't have a pool and they definitely don't have enough test models of that. That would be thousands of dollars for a dive shop to do, which is very unfortunate um, for the consumer at the moment. But um, you can start breaking stuff down to what's best for you by a few simple questions, which will absolutely help this problem. And first off, you can decide the first thing to pick out is your body weight and size. And most guys underneath 185 pounds tend to be into softs. Hmm. of whatever brand that is. And then 185 pounds tends to be that threshold. And then there's a level of fitness in there and up to about 230 pounds. And those guys tend to be in mediums. The 230 pounds and above tend to be in hards. And then you can kind of decide if you like reactive fins or progressive fins, and that'll narrow out another 80% of your fins that you can pick from. Hmm. But um, a few simple questions to ask yourself is, are you more of a free diver or are you more of a spear fisherman? And if you're a spear fisherman, in my mind, the answer automatically goes towards a reactive fin. Like when you're trying to close distance on a fish, when you're trying to get your ass off the bottom, coming back up, you need to be able to kick and close ground. If you're line diving and you're trying for like your personal best in depth, then at that point, the reactive fin becomes a lot better. Or I'm sorry, not the reactive, the progressive fin becomes a lot better. But um, it is kind of unfortunate that, and I don't, I don't know many freediving spearfishing shops that have a pool, even the shops, even the bigger shops don't have access to that. But um, I know at Neptonics two to three times a year between spring fest and the pools that we'll take out seven or eight sets of fins and let everybody kick, you know, composites next to carbon fibers, next to the dive bars, next to the GFTs, next to the C4s and Guys can get a really good feel of what they like yeah, at yeah, that yeah. part. Yeah. But um surface swimming's huge too, you know, like um the toe angle, there's so much that comes into it. So we can um we can leave off and maybe cover some of that ground another time. But um next episode I want to do some hunting techniques with you. So definitely um making the most of um spearfishing from shore but probably with a heavy focus of um reef reef diving uh, drift diving from boats would probably be awesome because i think there's um some real missed opportunities there and um and you've got a ton of knowledge in that area so it'd be awesome yeah looking forward to it all right cool jerry well um awesome to have neptonics aboard and uh fantastic to chat with you a.m my time p.m definitely p.m your time i thought i saw your lady putting on all the lights in the background there just before i, so. I believe she was <laughs> so um thanks for I joining me i just saw stuff come on so yeah uh, um neptonics.com obviously an, an awesome website if you're building a spear gun if you're after high quality components and gear check out neptonics.com you can use the code noob 10 n-o-o-b 10 to save 10 percent on any of their products and um welcome aboard jerry awesome to have neptonics uh, partnering with the noob spirit podcast so thank you yeah thanks a lot man
some tight tips there from Jerry Guerra today. Awesome chat about spear gun ballistics. Um, definitely uh, worth thinking about, especially the shaft overhang thing. I think it's it's more of a, a matter of um, helping us with aiming rather than being a ballistics thing, is having that overhang and having it consistent on every spear gun. Um, but as usual, everyone's got their own opinion and ideas about it, and it's awesome to explore those and uh, have that conversation on the show. I'm glad you were with me today to enjoy it. And uh, if you wanted to check out the deals mentioned today, neptonics.com and uh, pump in the code NOOB10 to save 10% off store-wide. And uh, it's awesome to have another major sponsor aboard. Now we've got Adreno at spearfishing.com.au. You can use the code NOOBSPARROW there to save $20 on any um, gear over $200. We've also got Neptonics on board now as the second major sponsor. It's fantastic to have these guys with us supporting the show. And um, yeah, hey, leave us a review if you're loving it. Um, send me an email, Shrek at NOOBSPARROW, if you've got anything to add to the conversation. Always good to hear from you. And um, as, as usual, you're invited to join the New Spirit community on Facebook and be, become part of the conversation and contribute to the community. Thanks for listening today, guys. Over and out. Oh, yeah. Today's podcast brought to you by brand new sponsor, Neptonics. They might be brand new to the New Spirit podcast, but they have been around for years. Neptonics spearfishing produce and represent some of the best spearfishing gear on the planet. Jerry Guerra says, if we sell it, well, hang on, hang on, let me do his voice. If we sell it, we believe in it, we trust it, and dive it. And uh, Jerry Guerra, he's a, he's a knowledgeable dude, and I, I'll back that Neptonic statement. If they stock it, they believe in it, and you can use it. Neptonics.com, use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off store-wide. N-O-O-B-10-1-0. Neptonics.com. Proud sponsors of the Noob Sparrow podcast. Four strong reasons to shop at spearfishing.com.au. They have a price beat guarantee on any Australian price for spearfishing equipment if they stock it. $15 flat rate shipping across Australia. They've got a 30 day hassles free returns policy. And you can save 20 bucks on every purchase over 200 by using the code Noob Sparrow at checkout when you shop online. Added to that, if you order gear online, it arrives quickly. It's very well packaged. It's a literal no-brainer if you're a spear in Australia. Shop spearfishing.com.au. Use the code NoobSpear and save.